0: Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift
1: card. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the Tamiami Trail Strangler. But first... Your True Crime Headlines. A nine-year-old child has been charged with first-degree murder and arson after a fire at a mobile home park in Illinois last April left five people dead, including three children. The accused child, who has not been identified due to their age, is charged with intentionally setting the fire that claimed the lives of a one-year-old child, two two two-year-olds, a 34-year-old man, and a 69-year-old woman. The Woodford County Coroner said that the fire was started intentionally. The nine-year-old is the youngest person to be charged with a mass killing since at least 2006, according to an Associated Press database. Illinois law does not allow for a person under 10 to be held in custody before trial and is not entitled to a public jury trial unless charged as an adult. The young suspect in this case Will be tried before a judge and an attorney will be appointed to represent them if convicted they face a likely sentence of probation but not beyond the age of 21. an unidentified man is accused of shooting a toddler in response to a minor car accident in atlanta a woman who has requested Only to be identified by her first name, Natika, reported that she was riding in a car with a friend, with her 13-month-old Rayla, in the back seat, when they were involved in a minor fender bender. The man demanded $300, and when the friend said that she didn't have it and asked to instead exchange insurance information, the man grew aggravated and began firing into the vehicle. Luckily, the child was only hit in the hand and is expected to make a full recovery. Atlanta police are still on the lookout for the shooter. Body cam footage of the shooting death of a Tatiana Jefferson has been released. This is the second high-profile killing of an unarmed black resident in their own home perpetrated by a white officer in Texas in recent news. A neighbor and acquaintance of Jefferson called a non-emergency police line in Fort Worth last Saturday when they saw that the doors were open in her home. The neighbor was requesting a welfare check. When officers arrived, they noted that the screen door was closed, but the door itself was open. Officer Aaron Dean proceeded to walk around the house where he could see a figure through a window. Dean commanded the figure to put up their hands, then fired. Footage shows that the shots were fired within two seconds of issuing the directive. Dean never identified himself as a police officer. Police issued medical care to Jefferson inside the home, but she passed at 2.30 a.m. Dean was slated to be terminated, but resigned. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next... The Tamiami Trail Strangler. But first, a quick break. If you're a true crime junkie who likes the no-nonsense style of storytelling of Murder Minute, no tangents, no opinions, just a single narrator recounting the facts of a crime, then chances are you're going to love Evidence Locker. Evidence Locker is a killer weekly podcast about international crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans just like you, Evidence Locker explores all the dark corners of the globe, covering cases from the U.S., the U.K., Sweden, Brazil, Australia, Japan, and many more. New episodes drop every Sunday night, just in time for your Monday morning commute. Check out Evidence Locker. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever looked at the back of your lotions and potions and thought, what are all these chemicals and why am I putting them on my body? Does aluminum really belong in my armpits? It's time to go native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day with trusted ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Making the switch to natural no longer has to mean sacrificing on effectiveness. Native really works. And you can choose from a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women, like coconut and vanilla, their most popular scent, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose, plus, You can pumpkin spice things up with limited-edition seasonal scents throughout the year. Native also offers an unscented and baking soda-free formula for those with extra sensitivities. And with no animal testing, Native isn't just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Go Native. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code MM during checkout. Try it risk-free with free returns and exchanges inside the U.S. That's N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T dot com. Promo code M M. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live.
0: Building the Tamiami Trail in 1924 was incredibly dangerous. The two-lane blacktop highway spans 275 miles from Tampa to Miami, cutting through the Everglades, the only place on the planet where crocodiles and alligators coexist. While the trail allowed Southwest Florida to become a booming metropolis, many people were injured and some likely died, creating the infrastructure. Some 70 years later, the Tamiami Trail became known for deaths of another kind—murder. In 1995, Lazaro Comisana, Elisa Martinez, Charity Nava, Wanda Crawford, Nicole Schneider, and Rhonda Dunn all died, literally, at the hands of a serial killer in what was considered a seedy section of the trail near downtown Miami. He strangled his victims until they stopped breathing, then raped the corpses anally. Most of the bodies were found in residential areas, dumped on the front lawns of homes, fully dressed, on holidays or weekends. Quickly known as the Tamiami Trail Strangler, the man preyed on one of the world's most vulnerable populations, street sex workers who struggled with drug addiction. You might think that was all they were, based on local newspaper coverage at the time, which described the victims as crackheads who traded tricks for cash with quote "drug monkeys on their backs." One article listed only their first names. But of course, neither addiction or prostitution make a life less valuable. Because street sex workers are so marginalized, often disconnected from loved ones and mainstream society, it's difficult to find information about who the victims were as people. That same marginalization makes them more vulnerable to predators too. But we do know some. Lazaro Comisana, the killer's first victim, was born in the late 1960s and raised by her grandmother. She was a transgender woman, though some reports called her a cross-dressing man, and once worked as a beautician. She was 26 or 27 when the killer strangled her on September 17, 1994. The same day, Heather Whitestone, another woman in her 20s from the South, was crowned Miss America. A photo of Lazaro on a memorial site shows a woman with an oval face, delicate features, and wavy hair she probably styled herself. Elisa Martinez was the strangler's second victim, murdered less than a month after Lazaro. Her name comes up on lists of victims, along with the number 44, her age at the time of her death, in some cases as a footnote. She was reportedly the only victim the killer had met multiple times prior to her murder, hiring her for sex twice, before killing her in bed while he watched television. The strangler struck again that November, taking the life of Charity Nava, who was 23 or 24. Like many prostitutes, Charity's earlier life wasn't easy. According to a Sun Sentinel report published around the time of her murder, Charity's mother was shot, leaving her paralyzed and bound to a wheelchair. Charity and her brother at first begged strangers for money, hoping to support the family, but that didn't provide nearly enough to get by on the killer used Charity's body to taunt investigators. On her back, he scrawled the words, Catch me if you can. Wanda Crawford, the Strangler's fourth victim, succumbed to his violence that November 25th. The 38-year-old mother of two had turned to drugs and prostitution while attempting to cope with the loss of her husband after a fatal car accident and a related insurance settlement. She quickly, quote, fell apart, according to an anonymous friend who spoke to the Sentinel, losing the successful cleaning service she owned and operated at Sanibel Island and her previously active social life. In an interview with members of the Miami Bureau, Reverend James D.B. Hubbs, who officiated Wanda's first marriage, described her as a sweet and charming young woman. Police had warned Wanda about the murderer just days before her death. In December 1994, weeks after his last murder and days before Christmas, Nicole Schneider's body was found. She was 28 years old, lived with her boyfriend, and had a sister in the area. Nicole was found wearing a silky blue dress and one of her high heel black shoes, the other nearby on the street. Her body revealed defensive wounds, making her the only victim who showed signs of scratching her attacker as she tried to fight him off. The next month on January 12th, Rhonda Dunn became the sixth and final victim of the strangler. At age 21, she was also the youngest victim. A remembrance image of Rhonda shows a young woman with thoughtful eyes, porcelain skin, and short Dark blonde hair. At the time of her death, her parents, who police described as blue collar workers, knew she was involved in sex work, but not that she had been living in Miami. They requested privacy from officials and flew Rhonda home for a local burial in Indiana. Before the killer was caught, and while the murders continued, soliciting for sex in the area carried on too. Mireya Navarro reported on the case for the New York Times in an article called Prostitutes Defy Killer by Working. They started applying new rules. Two women and a trans person could work in parked cars as long as they were within screaming distance of each other. Leaving the trail was not an option for many of the regulars, although a few were able to land erotic dancing jobs in safer settings a 20-year-old prostitute who went by Sassy told Navarro, I have to pay bills. I have four kids. Sassy had left a job at a shoe store to make substantially more money, around $300 a night, on the streets. While the investigation continued with thousands of DNA samples collected from men who frequented the area and sex offenders, there was very little public outcry. Angelica Ospino A 23 year old prostitute at the time told the New York Times that the killer would have been caught already if someone in the mainstream community had been victimized, adding, It would have been demanded. Five months passed with no additional murders, no strangled bodies appearing on residential front lawns. Then finally, a member of their own community helped reveal a prime suspect. After picking up a woman for sexual services, he bound her from head to toe with duct tape and left her alone in his apartment. Before he could return, the woman screamed, making so much noise, duct taped and all, that neighbors heard and contacted authorities. The Tamiami Trail Strangler was identified as 40-year-old Rory Enrique Conde. He surprised investigators by confessing to all the murders in detail. In an episode of the true crime series, Body of Evidence, Dade County Prosecutor Abraham Laser said this of Conde's circular reasoning. His wife would catch him coming home late in the evening or well past midnight, and she would accuse him of seeing prostitutes. Eventually, he said that he did. She left with the kids and he said he wanted to get back at the prostitutes for ruining his life. And that five-month break in his crimes? During that time, he was with his family working on reconciling his marriage. Born and raised in Colombia, Conde's mother died when he was young, leaving him to live with his paternal grandmother and then his emotionally and sexually abusive father. Years later, as a husband and father himself, Conde too became abusive, at one point spending time in jail for domestic violence. After his wife left him, he threatened to kill her if she dared date another man. What was it that made Conde snap? Was he escalating as so many perpetrators do, requiring more and more violence to achieve their desired high? At trial, Conde's defense claimed that discovering that Lazaro was transgender pushed him over the edge, reminding him of sexual abuse during his childhood. True or not, that didn't make Lazaro's murder less heinous, tragic, or worthy of punishment according to prosecutors, who won the case. Criminal profiler Dale Hinman said she felt Conde enjoyed his crimes and wanted attention for them, and that he'd chosen people whose lives to him seemed disposable. Everybody is a human being, Hinman added, and they deserve law enforcement's complete attention, and they got it in this case. On March 7th of 2000, Conde was convicted and sentenced to death for murdering Rhonda Dunn. The following year, he pled guilty to the five other murders and was sentenced to five consecutive life terms without parole with hopes of reversing his death penalty. That attempt was unsuccessful, as were more than a dozen appeals. After agreeing to a plea deal in April 2001, that if he were ever able to overturn his death penalty, he wouldn't be able to vacate his guilty pleas to the slayings of the five other women, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle said, This sentence will ensure that Rory Conde never again walks the streets of this community. Conde remains on death row.
1: This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. And now, for 24-hour early access ad-free and bonus episodes, check out Murder Minute on Himalaya.